A good morning to you on this Wednesday, and welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us on this April 21st morning. What a day yesterday for the show, obviously. We expect that maybe this morning we have some uh, uh, some new audience members. Maybe we have some new community members, as we might refer to them, and, and, and we appreciate you checking out the show. A big day yesterday, obviously, uh, our conversation with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, which we'll recap through today's show. Gave us a, you know 20 minutes or so. Obviously, felt like not enough time, but an opportunity to put some questions directly in front of the PM and we covered a lot of ground uh, as much as we could, uh, including some questions from you, our audience members. Here's the thing. If you're new here, let me say we're big on audience interaction. This is a conversation uh, with a community that gathers each and every day. It's a little bit unique. Some of our audience members join us live every morning on the Mixler audio app or via our YouTube channel. And then uh, many of our audience members, most of them uh, throughout the rest of the day, come swing on back to YouTube or subscribe to and download our daily podcast we take a look at our uh we check our uh hashtag real talk rj and of course you can reach us by email talk at ryanjesperson.com that's how we received many of the questions that we considered yesterday and it's how we're getting a bunch of the feedback as well from that interview we wanted to continue the conversation in particular about child care, because there are some interesting implications here that that involve provincial governments across Canada, the federal government, and then, of course, a big investment uh, over the next five years or so, $30 billion from the federal government to get this affordable national child care program kickstarted. We want to know what does it mean and what's potentially at risk. In other words, if a province like Alberta, we heard from Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney yesterday, cynical about the idea, dismissive of the idea. They don't want the feds telling them how to structure their child care programs. They just want the funding. Uh, what did the prime minister tell us yesterday? He said, well, there probably will be strings attached. There will be some requirements. And so we thought we'd reach out to federal minister Miriam Monsef. She's the uh, minister for women and gender equality, as well as rural economic development. Uh, the federal minister will be joining us in about eight minutes time. And so we're going to continue that conversation, dig in a little bit deeper. Plus, I want uh, her insights on how this budget is good for women, how it works toward gender equality. And, and I'm sure that we'll have some comments and questions submitted on our live chat on YouTube or via our hashtag today. If you'd like to put a question in front of the minister, we invite you to do so. Plus, rural economic development. In particular, I'm intrigued by the federal government's plan to increase services for rural broadband internet. For some of you, our valued audience members, I bet the show's coming across a little choppy this morning, and we're pushing it out with a lot of bandwidth, but you're having a hard time getting it because, quite frankly, the internet in your area sucks, and you can tell everybody about it, and you may have been banging drums about it, and you've been hearing announcements or at least plans to increase that rural broadband, but I bet you could tell us better than I could tell you what a difference it might make in your life. We've got students that have been learning from home now for, uh, in some cases, a full year. We have people that are doing business from home, whether it's Zoom meetings or e-commerce or what have you. The world has changed and it's more important now than ever. So rural economic development has to include conversation about that, right? Before we hit the half hour mark of this show, we're also going to talk to a representative of the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta. You want to talk about rural economic development? You want to talk about diversifying an economy? What about plant proteins, especially in a province like Alberta that has had agriculture as a huge part of its economic past, its present, and of course, its future? Plant proteins are big. 
So why is the provincial government pulling less than a million dollars, which means ultimately the end of the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta? That's right. They're shutting down. They're shutting down because they didn't get the funding that they need. But we're not talking about a billion dollars like you might throw at a pipeline that's going to get canceled. We're not talking about hundreds of millions of dollars that might go to initiatives that have no promised return or would focus on industries that are slowly being phased out. Heck, we're not even talking about 30 million dollars like like you might spend on a on a war room. We're talking about less than a million to help advocates for and champions of a plant protein alliance agricultural producers albertans further their industry so we're going to talk uh, to a representative from the plant protein alliance of alberta that's coming up in about 15 to 20 minutes from now and then did you know that it's canadian infertility awareness week prepare yourself brace yourself for a powerful conversation coming up in just over a half hour from now we're going to talk to an infertility specialist and two patients We'll hear their stories on on what they've been going through and what, what they've been subjecting themselves to and what the emotional and even physical roller coaster ride can look like. Why is this week awareness week so important to those whose lives are impacted by infertility? We'll go there. Plus, if you didn't see our full conversation with the prime minister yesterday, we're going to bring you some highlights, not in like a self-congratulatory way, but in a way that circles back on some issues that we know really matter to you. So not just child care, but but we're going to touch on whether or not there's going to be an election by the end of this calendar year. If you heard his answer to my question yesterday, you may be led to believe he says we'll leave that up to parliament to decide. Well, what he means by that is that they would they would obviously need a few things to happen, but it would be things that they would quite likely influence and direct. So I don't know about you. I took that as a yes. That's how I took it. We'll also talk about the prime minister's relationship with Alberta's premier, Jason Kenney. It's it's no secret that the two probably don't like each other. I don't want to speak for anybody else other than myself. It's obvious that Jason Kenney can't stand Justin Trudeau. Trudeau kind of approaches it from a different angle. As you'll see, I'm going to replay his answer when I asked him directly about that relationship. It wasn't gossip. It wasn't page six kind of stuff. It's in the context of Albertans needing to know that the relationship is healthy enough that there can be cooperation between the two levels of government to get things done. After all, would any of you, would any of us accept a child care plan falling flat or the idea of pharmacare being automatically dismissed or maybe investment not happening or cooperation or economic stimulus between two levels of government? Just because two individuals couldn't stand one another, it matters, doesn't it? That relationship, in a way, if it interferes with, you know, business, government business, is a relationship that's relevant to all of us. And so we're going to replay what the prime minister had to say about that. Plus, his comment I thought was interesting on the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, their detention in China continues. Their families are obviously devastated by this. The prime minister gave some insight into what's changed or maybe what's not with the change in the Oval Office. I know a lot of Canadians, including those two families, were optimistic that when Joe Biden took over, that may Maybe those two Canadians might be released. It's not the case yet. And so we'll find out why. Let's get into it. A reminder every single morning. This show is presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, they're all about 
financial sovereignty. If you've heard their CEO, Adam O'Brien, talk about it, you know that. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago, and you can find that uh, if you subscribe to our podcast or check out our YouTube channel. Now, it can be on a personal front or it can be on your business's front. Is cryptocurrency a part of it? If you have any questions about what that might look like or you want to get the ball rolling and have it made easy, that's what the team at Bitcoin Well does. You can find more information and the link to their website under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We'll be speaking to the Federal Minister for Women and Gender Equality in Rural Economic Development, the Honorable Miriam Monsef, in just a few moments. Uh, let's tee this up, though, with a conversation on child care. It's a big part of the Liberals' budget, the budget that was released, the first one in two years on Monday. And it includes about $30 billion for the next five years to establish a federally funded child care program, an affordable child care program in partnership with the provinces uh, it then commits about eight billion dollars a year after that to keep the program going we asked the prime minister yesterday based on a question from an audience member from heidi about whether or not there'd be strings attached uh, i don't think sam did we include my preamble in the question or just his answer my preamble basically said hey listen and, and this was me reading heidi's question a province like bc that's already moving toward ten dollar a day child care We'll just take this money in partnership with the feds and fast track that program happening. Whereas here in Alberta, we've already heard from the premier, uh, Jason Kenney, on Tuesday has no appetite for it. He doesn't want the strings attached, whether it's on principle or otherwise. He doesn't want Ottawa telling Alberta what to do. Now, that's not an unusual position for provinces to take. That's not unique to Premier Jason Kenney. But here's what Justin Trudeau had to say about strings attached. Uh, Ryan and, and Heidi, that is exactly the question that we have spent uh, the last many, many months wrestling with. Uh, we have very, very clear uh, targets around uh, affordability, around quality, around training of early childhood ed educators that are going to be requirements to the bilateral agreements that will be signed uh, by the provinces who want to move forward on this. Uh, we recognize that the provinces have jurisdiction uh, over issues like this and nobody can force them, or sorry, the federal government can't force them to do something they don't want to do. But it is so obvious from Quebec's example and from examples uh, elsewhere around the world that going properly and strongly on real childcare supports is not just the, the moral thing or the right thing or the fair thing or the equality thing. It's also the smart economic play as well. And that, that push and that, uh, you know, requirement that this be a uh, real movement on childcare and not just, uh, uh, and not, not anything else uh, is going to be built into those negotiations. Uh, provinces that agree to step up in real ways on childcare uh, will uh, move forward on agreements. Uh, those who aren't interested, uh, well, um, there's nothing we can do to force them to do it, but they won't be getting uh, the resources that'll come through a bilateral deal uh, to move forward on childcare. 
That was uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on this program yesterday, <clears throat> of course, on a special edition, by the way, an afternoon edition. Uh, Samuel G. Brooks, the technical producer of this show, although I think I may have just caught you. Are you lining up minister right now? I should probably I, I, stay I am, but I can multitask. Well, I, was just, I was going to ask you, it's, it's kind of a unique experience, and it's one of the things that, that we've been realizing that we can do, and we love it. We, we did it with uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland. We did it with Dr. Stephen Duckett out of Australia, and we've offered it to a couple of other, uh, you might say, high-profile guests or guests whose schedules you know would preclude them from appearing in our in our regular broadcast hours but what a neat way for us to remind our audience and even for us to be reminded that in this format and on our platform we can really go live whenever we want well and i kind of like i love that format i love the freedom of that i love like, if you think about it the only other people that can really do this is kind of cable news they can just sort of throw an interview right. on like yeah. whenever it happens and some radio specials will like break into a program if it's a big deal but it's like you know stuff usually in media is pretty program pretty blocked pretty curated and and why interviews can happen anytime news can break at any time we can go live whenever we want it's it's man we live in the future it's great pretty cool stuff uh, so uh we'll be keeping an eye on our live chat here uh sam's lining up the minister uh, minister monsef in just a second what i'll do to make it easy uh is just take a quick break let me buy us 60 seconds of time here and remind you how excited we are to be partnering up with the team at local waste they sponsor our trash talk each and every friday if you've got something you got to get off your chest email it to us take some time put some thought into it and send it to talk at ryanjesperson.com there's been a trend with the trash talk submissions lately by the way I'm, I'm having to start censoring them a little bit which was never the point of trash talk if you've seen it you know it, it can it can get a little um spirited words with punch power as i read your emails and it seems like everybody now is trying to outdo each other and get me to say things that you know i'm not gonna say but we're having so much fun with it we're having so much fun with the submissions we're receiving and we get them down to you know between four and six every friday and read them out local waste they love to talk trash it's what they've been doing for more than a quarter century is a family-owned business based here in edmonton alberta whether it's a restaurant that your family's running or or whether you you know you're part of a, a big conglomerate Hey, one of the biggest malls, you know, one of the biggest hotels, maybe you're a candidate for changing up the way that your garbage and recycling is handled with local waste. Better prices. They love to compete for your business. Plus, you're dealing with somebody in your home city. Check them out at localwaste.ca. Let's get to our leadoff guest this morning. Uh, very much looking forward to checking in with uh, Miriam Monsef, uh, the Honorable Minister. Uh, of course, uh, a big part of the budget released on Monday had to do with child care and it had to do with with women or it was of interest to women. And so we're excited to talk to Canada's Minister for Women and Gender Equality and Rural Economic Development, the MP out of Peterborough, uh, Kawartha. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's snowing here, and I hear there's snow coming your way. It wasn't us. Well, that's that's news to me. I didn't actually know that. I haven't checked the forecast, so I'm going to be watching the sky because we've been enjoying some pretty decent temperatures, but nothing surprises us on the prairies, Minister. I probably don't have to tell you that. Uh, well, the cabinet discussions. As this budget comes together, uh, there was a lot of time. I know a lot of Canadians felt like your government took too long to put a budget out, but, but I know that it gave you time to deliberate, to consider the impact of the pandemic, to look forward and to anticipate what was needed. Uh, you talk to advocates for affordable child care, they're going to say, we've been banging this drum for 50 years. Uh, and I guess the fact that it took a pandemic to make it happen is kind of a silver lining. What were those cabinet discussions or deliberations like? Can you take us into the room? 
to the extent that I can, Ryan, of course I will. The the entire goal of the budget and the focus of the government of Canada is to help get Canadians to get people to work. And we do that by first and foremost conquering COVID and getting Canadians back to work means vaccines into arms as quickly as possible, limiting the spread of COVID. And then this childcare investment, Ryan, the unfinished business of the Royal Commission on the Status of Women report half a century ago with $30 billion in real money on the table with a commitment to cut fees for parents by a half by next year and then get us to $10 a day childcare in five years. You know, the entire goal here is to help people get to work, particularly women who have been hard hit by COVID in racialized communities, newcomers, low-income folks uh, in in Edmonton, in Alberta, in, in, in my own uh, neck of the woods. Parents are paying close to $1,000, if not more, a month for childcare. In places like Quebec City, they're paying less than $200 a month for childcare. We can save parents money and we can make sure our kids get the best start in life and then get their parents to work so that they can earn a decent income and earn a decent living and, you know, pursue their dreams. And that's the goal here. And the deliberations were thorough. I promise you, we talked to experts later today. I'll be talking to experts uh, virtually in Alberta. And we're looking forward to working away and arranging those bilateral agreements because People can't wait. We can get vaccines into arms and get people back to work. Minister, I don't have to tell you that Alberta's premier doesn't think that this is a good idea. Uh, Yesterday, he said that it would only support, quote, urban nine to five government and union run institutional daycare options. Um, Had to get the union shot in there. But uh, Jason Kenney went on to say that it excludes people that make the sacrificial choice uh, and it excludes rural families, shift workers, and many indigenous people. Uh, that leaves a lot of Albertans disheartened uh, as the realization occurs to them. This probably isn't going to happen in this province. Uh, what will you do to work with Alberta's government or what have you been doing to convince them that this plan can work for both governments? And so it's been less than 72 hours since the budget has been tabled. We're, we're of course, thrilled that there's $30 billion on the table. And we're going to give our colleagues in provinces and territories time to process what's in the budget. And, you know, there is a separate stream for Indigenous families on a distinction basis. There is a separate stream for kids with disabilities and exceptionalities. We have heard loudly and clearly from our partners in every jurisdiction that they have unique needs and we are absolutely open to them as we've been in our existing agreements. And, you know, as the Minister for Rural Economic Development, let me assure you that there will be a very thoughtful rural lens applied to this program and the province will play a really big role in making sure that that is the case. Uh, Of course, what we will not compromise on is cutting fees for parents by a half and getting to that $10 a day per kid uh, in five years. 
Can you explain to us the consultation process for, for determining what's best or what's most needed for, for rural Canadians in particular? I, I, I've had countless conversations. I'm sure you have as well, obviously, in a different context with, with rural Canadians talking about health care needs, talking about security, talking about firearms policy, policing, talking about education, talking about broadband. I mean, the list goes on and on. Their reality is different. Their challenges are unique. How does the federal government uh, participate in or undertake meaningful consultation with rural Canadians in a way that allows you to go to them and say, we have listened to you truly? Well, the proof is in the pudding, right? The Universal Broadband Fund is the single largest investment in high-speed internet by any government in Canada's history ever. And it got a top up in the budget. And the way we designed that program was listening to rural communities say we need flexibility and we need a one stop shop that we can go to. We don't all have the capacity to go through the application process on our own. Do some of that handholding for us. Connect us to engineers and folks who can help make it move forward faster. And we said, yes, we'll do it. And that's in place. We're working, uh, you know, we brought back the Rural Economic Development Secretariat, which the previous government got rid of. We're bringing back data and meaningful rural data that is uh, disaggregated. So for the super nerds listening, we are counting very carefully what matters. And when it comes to child care, we get that the economies and communities in rural and really remote and small communities are different in urban centers. I myself live in a mixed rural urban riding. Internet connection around here is shoddy, but the need for childcare is real. And we're going to, like later today, I'm going to be connecting with experts from friendship centers, from Métis Group, newcomer associations, childcare advocates, and we're going to be taking their realities into account as the incredible Ahmed Hossein goes to the negotiation table with, with your province. I will also say this, we are, the, this is a liberal budget. We believe in choice and we're going to defend choice moving forward for families who say, I'd rather uh, choose to stay at home and look after my kids. We respect that choice. The Canada Child Benefit is there for that very reason to help parents with the cost of raising their kids in Alberta before the pandemic. It cut child poverty rate by 50%. We've indexed it to the cost of living. We've topped it up during the pandemic. So we've got your back too. And rest assured that we're going to work very closely with experts in your communities to make sure that the outcome we arrive at, that we get it right, that it's based on your unique needs, and that ultimately you pay half of what you're paying for childcare costs next year. And that in five years from now, you get the benefit from $10 a day childcare, just like the rest of the country will. Uh, Minister, right after I talk to you, uh, I'm going to be talking to a representative from the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta, and I'm going to admit that that I am among those who can be guilty of neglecting to recognize or reflect how significant agriculture is to Alberta's economy, to Canada's economy. We talk so much about oil and gas, and then when we realize we need to diversify even our interviews, we talk about things like AI and tech. And ag sits here and goes, we've been doing this for more than 100 years. The folks at the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta are 
discouraged and quite frankly, I would imagine furious that a rather negligible amount of funding pulled by the provincial government means that this alliance will close down this as there's talk about diversifying economies, including ag. What is more of an example or a better example of diversification in ag than plant proteins? But here we find ourselves. What is the federal government doing to encourage ag producers on the prairies and to lead them to believe meaningfully that the federal government understands what meaningful diversification looks like? One of the early lessons of COVID, when we saw folks in grocery stores afraid of what would happen if our borders closed, one of the biggest lessons was that food security is an issue around sovereignty. And Canada has the potential to become a, an agri-food superpower. And the fact that the, the person who tabled the budget in the House of Commons on Monday is, is a daughter of an Alberta farming family also plays a role in this. We are going to, first of all, make sure innovation continues on farms and for farm families by connecting them to high-speed internet. We recognize that they're on the front lines of the fight against climate change. So we're investing in climate resilient uh, infrastructure and we're supporting them with that transition. There is uh, a, an ongoing commitment to make sure that we maintain and strengthen our uh, export corridors and that we support uh, things like supply management, the agri-stability supports that are in place for our farmers, and innovation that can happen in that sector. There's a whole section, now I'm talking to the super nerds, there's a whole section in the budget around what we're doing to support rural communities and agriculture as a sector. If you're you know, scrolling through Netflix thinking about what to watch one of these nights, take a look either at that budget or better yet, the speech that Christia Freeling gave on Monday, I hope it gives farmers, farming families uh, who are the major players in the fight against climate change and in ensuring our food sovereignty, peace of mind that the federal government has your back and we see you as a key driver of economic growth in our country moving forward. And especially right now, I want to thank every single farming family in your beautiful province for stepping up. I know many of you are donating to food banks as well as keeping people employed, keeping your employees safe. We appreciate you and we're going to have your back. Minister, I know you have to go. So do I. So make this a quick final question, uh, because it's simply I'm asking you for a commitment to continue a conversation about a universal basic income. I know that it was it was voted at the recent liberal convention. I think it was just wasn't it last weekend. I think the number two priority uh, from members. We didn't see it in the budget yesterday. I asked the prime minister about it yesterday. Our audience can check out that answer. Uh, But is your government or will you make a commitment to continue that conversation or has it been ruled out? Everything's on the table, uh, Ryan. Right now, the focus is get the pandemic behind us, get those needles into arms and help people get back to work. There's been an investment in a $15 per hour federal minimum wage. The Canada Workers Benefit is providing uh, a million more Canadians with a living wage. And absolutely, as I can assure you that personally for me, ensuring that every Canadian has that dignified opportunity to get back on their feet and to give back to their community is a priority. And this party, this prime minister, this team has been very clear about listening to Canadians and responding to what they have to say. So you've got my commitment for that. 
And absolutely, I look forward to coming back and checking in with you, Ryan, as the conversations with early learning childcare. It's only 72 hours since the budget was tabled, but the conversation will develop quickly and getting to that uh, $10 a day childcare with the fees cut in half uh, by next year is a key priority. It'll develop quickly. And I, I hope you'll have me back so we can catch up. Door is always open, uh, Minister. That's the Honorable Miriam Monsef. She's the, the first woman to be elected in her federal riding. She's the first Afghan-Canadian MP in Canada's history, uh, the first Muslim woman to serve as a federal cabinet minister, the first Muslim, period, isn't that the truth, minister, to serve in federal cabinet, Canada's minister for women and gender equality and rural economic development. Have a great rest of your week. You too, my friend. Uh, interesting insight there. We appreciate your questions on the live chat Um and, and I'll circle back on some of that because we do have uh, Allison Amateur waiting to talk here about plant proteins. Uh, I thought that was uh, an interesting detail about and when you can compare and contrast how the federal and Alberta's provincial government are feeling right now about child care and subsidized child care. Um, Alberta's premier basically saying thanks, but no thanks, um, which may not be the, the tone that Albertans are taking, by the way. And Jason Kenny may be reminded of that in days to come. Jillian's watching right now, says Kenny has too many opinions on things he has no understanding or experience of education, child care, furthering education. He's like somebody who can't swim trying to coach swimming. Um, what, what happens when you have someone who can't swim coaching swimming? Uh, people start drowning. Right, Jillian? So that's an interesting one. Um I am expecting feedback from our audience members on that. If, if child care is relevant to you, here's the thing. As I catch myself mid-sentence and almost retract it before I finish it, child care or affordable child care is relevant to everybody because the evidence is there on the economic impact of investing in that type of program. So it's relevant to everybody. You know, if you want to talk about, but my taxes, let's have a bigger, more fulsome conversation on what those economic implications can be. Uh, we'll talk about rural economic diversification and plant proteins in just a second. Want to remind you, speaking of plant proteins, the team at Friesen Brothers, they've just opened their 15th Alberta location just off the Anthony Henday at Rabbit Hill Road. And they're very proud of, of some of the meat substitutes, the, the plant protein options that they're featuring. I've been telling you about this Montreal smoked tofu that I tried there. That's just one example. If you go check out the store, you're going to see they've got entire sections there for, for the vegans, the vegetarians, those that are working with gluten sensitivities. I mean, whatever your dietary restrictions look like, there are major options for you at Friesen Brothers. Not just a couple of things getting dust on the back of the shelf. That's what the other grocery stores do. Check them out today. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and and Alberta owned. Also, a shout out to those of you that are, hey, taking a look at some of the options for travel this summer and realizing that, I'm, I mean, I hate to say it and I want to be optimistic, but it looks like maybe another COVID summer. So camping is going to be big for you. Maybe you're thinking about picking up a trailer or maybe you just at least need a truck or an SUV with enough room for your family, a couple of coolers, maybe the dog and everything that you're going to need to have fun out in the great outdoors by yourself. Whether it's a Ram 1500, hey, maybe one of those big, beautiful one tons, the Ram 3500, or maybe a Jeep, maybe the Grand Cherokee, the Grand Cherokee L, that new one, the third row of seating, seven seats for the first time in a Grand Cherokee. You won't find a better selection than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They're proud to have Alberta's best selection on both the, jo the Dodge and Jeep lineups, and they can send options back and forth between the two dealerships so you get double the selection. All right. 
Yesterday, I mean, this has been an announcement I know that's been difficult for a lot of agricultural producers. The Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta announcing it's closing down. Uh, it's because it's lost some funding from the provincial government that was key to keeping it afloat. Uh, our guest this morning, Allison Amateur, is a grain farmer, uh, board chair of the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta, and a director with Alberta Pulse Growers. She and her husband of more than 30 years, Michael, operate a third-generation farm near Sylvan Lake. Allison, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks, Ryan. Am I pronouncing your surname correctly? I want to make sure. No, you did pretty good. Okay, good stuff. Uh, This is obviously, I would imagine, pretty discouraging news. Uh, How did we get to this point? Well, unfortunately, we are dependent on a certain amount of government funding for our basic operation. We have a membership that pays membership dollars, but in order to have a very wide membership, we try to keep our membership fees very low. It's much more valuable to have a lot of members than to have two or three well-paying members. So because of that, we we needed some core funding and the government has given us some some pretty basic funding to keep going for the last three years and determined this year that they wouldn't. So what does this mean? I mean, what are the implications here? Well, what we were as an organization uh, was like the, the coffee shop that everybody in the ecosystem could connect through. Our entire mantra was connect, learn, share. We really believed that by connecting uh, businesses to investors, perhaps to banks, perhaps to researchers, perhaps to other suppliers or, or people downstream, that we were able to build up the whole ecosystem. We spent a lot of time on uh, learning opportunities, whether it was a webinar on fractionation or uh, investing, angel investors, venture capital, banks, or perhaps on how to cook with it. We we tried to share the learning around. And we also shared a lot of what was going on in the space, both nationally and internationally, so that all of our members could benefit as much as possible from one clearinghouse of information and connections. Allison, were you seeing proof that the work that, that your group was doing was effective in, in growing this industry and advancing the interests? Oh, very much so. I, I think some of the... Uh, some of the experiences I had that showed it to me the most would be when we would have somebody come to a networking session that was building a product, but maybe perhaps stuck in one spot and through one of our meetings or through, or through something else, they would meet somebody else who would get them to the next level, maybe provide them with, with investment, maybe provide them with a new supply chain, maybe provide them with a new uh, downstream place. But we saw it over and over. Our members would come and say, because I came to your to your meeting or because of this, I met this one, which moved me to this level. And that was our goal. I'm, I'm looking at, uh, I mean, just some background information for our audience. Uh, Ernst & Young, uh, obviously a globally recognized uh, firm, uh, just issued a report estimating uh, plant-based proteins to be at least, as if I need to tell you this, Allison, at least a $20 billion a year opportunity for Canada uh, over the next 15 years. Uh, a, a column in the Globe and Mail about a week ago outlines the need for investment and the urgency 
in bringing about transformational change to our agri-food industry. To describe this as a step back in that context, I think would be fair. How would you evaluate the potential of, of, of plant-based proteins in Canada? What are the implications or the potential opportunities for Canadian producers? Oh, we have amazing potential. Just to give you an idea where we're at right now, Canada is the largest exporter of pulses in the world. We are exporting canola, wheat, barley, hemp. Uh, I, I could go on with another 15, 20 commodities probably, but but we are huge exporters. We've always been known as that country that feeds the world. Unfortunately, what we also export when we export uh, a train load of a raw product is we're exporting all of the jobs and all of the GDP that come from adding value to that product. So for example, let's say that uh, that we send a hopper car of peas out to the port and it goes to another country. Pick one. They, they go to hundreds, you know, to dozens and dozens of countries. That country is going to bring them in and they're going to maybe fractionate them, maybe make a food product out of them. So they're adding all the value in their country and then maybe they're exporting that product back to Canada, which is happening in a number of cases. So instead of us uh, doing the work with the basic product here and exporting finished products, and getting all of the GDP associated with uh, exporting finished product instead of raw product and all of the jobs and all of the intellectual property, we are exporting raw product. We, we export about 90% of what we grow right now. Um, I would be happy if we kept uh, even 50% of it at home and did that work with it. Uh, Obviously, 100 would be wonderful. That's what places like Denmark and the Netherlands do. They, they keep 100% home and add value to it. So our best plan as a nation is to add value to all of our natural resources, whether it's oil and gas or uh, lumber or livestock or, you know, minerals. Add value here. Allison, I was I was just going to say the same thing as I'm listening to you talk. I can't I mean, I can't remember how many conversations we've had about this exact thing, about refining our own product here, about I've heard the same conversation, people talking about canola. I don't want to get too out of my depth in that. But I mean, there are countless examples here. Can I ask like just just <laughs> this is more of like a question over beers here. Is it does it feel like when you when you're a, a grain farmer or, or like a pulse farmer it, um, in a place like Alberta? You know, when, when people say, like, let, let me get a little bit abstract here. I remember when Katie Lang, what was this, 30 years ago, started talking about dialing back beef uh, beef consumption. I mean, she was she was seen as like a pariah. She was like attacked in her home province. People described her as anti-Albertan. People were burning her albums and burning her tapes. And, and I remember the whole time thinking, you know, the alternative to beef uh, is is also grown by a bunch of Alberta producers. And people seem to neglect that fact. People people see talk about pulling a little bit of red meat out of your diet as an attack on Alberta ag when really it could be a huge boon for Alberta ag if you really think about it. Do you have to fight for, I guess, respect uh, based on what you farm in Alberta? You know, I wouldn't say so. And, and let me be clear, Plant Protein Alliance has always said we're not anti-livestock or anti any of the other proteins. And I'm not suggesting that. 
No, we recognize that the world is asking for more protein. And as the population increases, more protein. And they're going to get it from beef, pork, chicken, fish, uh, peas, soybeans, wheat, barley. They're going to get it from insects. And in most cases, we raise it all here. So, yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, we, we help all producers when we focus on all proteins. We have a, a lot of acres of cropland in this province and we're growing a lot of protein in addition to the, the protein that we're raising. Um, uh, Kimo Lucas CC'd me. I, he, he's involved with your group, obviously, and he CC'd me on a, a message that he sent to Alberta's Agriculture Minister Devin Dreeshen. Uh, just want to read a portion of it. He says, "You know, Minister Dreeshen, I've been I've been in the plant based protein industry for almost fifteen years as a person whose company is focused on selling plant based proteins to major food companies globally. I was shocked and outraged by the government's about face with regard to your support for the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta and for our in." industry he goes on to say i was a big fan up until now of your government and of the premier and i'm sorry to say that this situation has completely changed my thinking you've lost my trust my confidence as an albertan it's sad to see your lack of priority on this once in a lifetime opportunity toward improved nutrition a healthier planet and an opportunity for albertans that from chemo lucas um what would it take from this government to keep the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta alive? How much money are we talking about or what would the government have to do that would keep the lights on and the door open? Well, I mean, we need core funding. We we would love to exist without it, but as a relatively young organization in a relatively emerging industry, uh, we just, we simply can't. It's really not a lot different than maybe 50 years ago in oil and gas they required, they needed the government to come in with some seed money and help them get established. And that's, that's really what we need. And, and chemo is correct. We have immense opportunities, absolutely amazing opportunities. And what we don't want is for all the other provinces to pick up the slack. And instead of sending our crops to port, we send them all to Manitoba and Saskatchewan to get processed. That would be a pity for Alberta. But would it would it be like less than a million dollars a year? Would it be less than five hundred thousand? What, what would you need to operate? What's that core funding look like? Oh, you know what? We'd love more than we got, but we uh, we're going to get two hundred fifty thousand. The, the government uh, told us we had that in the middle of March and then walked it back at the end of March. That's bare bones. So we this have, this is all over two hundred fifty grand. It's very bare bones. Yeah. Unbelievable. <clears throat> Allison, thanks for the, the work that you're doing in feeding Albertans and feeding Canadians. And thanks for doing this interview. And, and we hope to have a good news follow up to this uh, in days or weeks to come. Yeah, it's a pleasure, Ryan. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, you got it. That's uh, Allison Amateur, who's the board chair uh, for the Plant Protein Alliance of Alberta. You know, it's unbelievable. If a government's going to talk big about economic diversification, and then pull a quarter million dollars, a quarter million, not a quarter billion, a quarter million dollars and collapse an alliance of plant protein of, of agricultural producers in an emerging market. How seriously does that government deserve to be taken on any talk about economic diversification, rural assistance, 
business help, economic stimulus. Does this government, this provincial government understand a damn thing about meaningful economic stimulus or do they only understand throwing money at industries, traditional industries that have donated to them in past but are struggling because of global market realities? That to me is more what I see. That's more what I see. If this government can't find a quarter million dollars, I mean, this government should be able to find $10 million to say, you know what? Pulse producers, grain, you know, you know what? Plant protein producers in Alberta or maybe potential producers, maybe those that would be looking to invest in this in the province that would see huge. I mean, I'm sure that the government probably sees this as an attack on beef or whatever. That's probably the perception. It's probably part of the reason. Maybe there was some lobby from some other industry. I don't know. I won't get into that because that's probably going to get me sued. But what is the influence here? Why on earth would this government walk it back? And just even from a political strategy standpoint, this doesn't even have anything to do with with the economic argument for it, with the, the, you know, the helping rural Albertans argument, with the economic like that. Has nothing, just from a political strategy alienating i mean i read you that letter a portion of that letter from chemo lucas i was a big fan of your government and the premier and this has completely changed my thinking you've lost my trust so now you're writing off plant protein grow producers agricultural growers in the province after pissing off all the ranchers and farmers with the water thing related to coal mining after pissing off doctors and nurses, after pissing off teachers, after pissing off the public sector. Like, who's going to be left? This is a, this is a provincial government that walks with great swagger and seems to have the blinders on with regards to an awareness of the impact or the swath of destruction they leave with where they invest and where they don't. It, this story blows my mind. You can let me know what you think. If you are a farmer, if you're an agricultural producer, or if you're an investor, we're always hearing about innovative startups related to ag, and we love those kind of stories. If you have something you think this audience would love, we'd love to hear from you to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's Infertility Awareness Week here in Canada, and in just a second, we're going to get to a roundtable on that. I think it's going to be a really powerful conversation. I have no doubt, as a matter of fact. I, w- I wanted to remind you that this entire studio is powered by Westworld Computers. I'm checking our hashtag right now on the iPad. I'm I'm taking a look at my email inbox as we speak on my MacBook Pro, and Sam's running the whole thing with that nice big iMac on his table as we take camera four and show off sam's production desk there you go this is our lineup plus the phones and everything else daryl and his team set to go but here's the thing they're more than computers they've also got music and entertainment covered including those sonos systems great incentives right now to ramp up your entertainment game just in time for summer invest in your space at westworld computers family owned for more than 40 years You know who else is family-owned, as if I need to tell you this, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Pork. Now, we don't pick favorites when it comes to our partners. We appreciate all of them. But the Sherwood Park and and Northwest Edmonton Dairy Queens, uh, I mean, how do you disagree with or how do you not champion ice cream? And then, of course, they've got the dairy-free options, too. Kind of fits with what we were just talking about, doesn't it? If you have sensitivities with regards to your diet, don't rule out the Dilly Bars. You can find them today at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. 
You know, it was just yesterday that uh, we talked to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and through this morning's show, we're going to recap some of the different things that we talked about. If you missed that interview, you can watch it in its entirety on our YouTube channel. And of course, you can also check it out by subscribing to and downloading our podcast. This was a moment in the interview that we wanted to focus on. Before we get into our roundtable, I know that a lot of Canadians have been wondering whether or not this budget really, uh, like Semhar Tekes, the political strategist, said yesterday on the show, whether it's really more of an election platform than a budget. In other words, can Canadians expect the writ to drop? Can Canadians expect an election by the end of the 2021 calendar year? We asked Prime Minister Trudeau about that yesterday. And, and I think if you read between the lines, he hinted that that might be the case. But he didn't volunteer that information right out of the gates. Here's the interaction. Uh, Prime Minister, the budget being described, uh, I think, by some as maybe more of an election platform than than anything. W- would you are you prepared to confirm or rule out an election by the end of this calendar year? It's it's amazing to me that people can look at a budget that is focused on supporting people both in the short term and building for the longer term uh, and say, oh, it's just about an election. No, it's not about an election. It's about giving people the support they need. It's about getting that balance right between being there right now for people while they continue to need supports through COVID uh, to helping our businesses bounce back from this recession and also putting in place uh, the path way to be even more prosperous, even more economic opportunities for everyone in the coming months. That's the job of a government to do, particularly on the way out of a crisis. We saw in the 2008 crisis that the government at the time pulled back supports too quickly, and therefore the impact of the 2008 recession lingered much longer, particularly amongst vulnerable groups, than it should have. We're not making that mistake. We're making sure that those supports are there for people. And and I am happy to have conversations about why uh, this is the right path. We know uh, the Conservatives think we've spent too much. Uh, We shouldn't spend as much on Canadians. Uh, I disagree because I think supporting Canadians is not just the right thing to do. It's the thing that makes sense so that everyone, including those innovative Albertan oil workers and otherwise, are going to be able to contribute to building this better future. Okay, so you won't rule out an election by the end of the year, though, correct? We're in a minority government right now. Uh, I I am focused on this pandemic. I'm focused on getting through this pandemic. Uh, It'll be up to Parliament to decide when the uh, when the election is. It'll be up to Parliament to decide. So that's what the Prime Minister was willing to give us yesterday. You can let me know what you think. If if I was a betting man, um, I, I actually am a betting man and I'm terrible at it. So I, all I do is lose money when I bet. So maybe maybe this is a terrible thing to put in front of you. Uh, but if I had five dollars burning a hole in my pocket, I, 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 I think I might bet on an election this year. Then again, how many of us thought that we were going to see an election this spring? I thought it was a very real possibility. And I, and I was seeing some pretty compelling arguments from people that thought the same thing. So why not? Who knows? There you have it again, that full interview available via our YouTube channel and on our podcast. Well, this week, it's Canadian Infertility Awareness Week. I know for a lot of people, that word infertility, it's going to hit you heavy because it's something that has has maybe played a big role in your journey as, as, a, as a person, um, as someone who wants to be a parent. Uh, maybe as somebody who is a parent now, but but there was a long road to getting there. It's a word that that I think can invoke feelings of, of sadness and despair and also great joy when there's hope or reason for it. 
I'm looking forward to a very meaningful conversation as we welcome our panel uh, in this morning. Um, Dr. Alda Nyo is a co-owner of Whole Family Health Integrated Wellness Center, a registered doctor of traditional Chinese medicine and an acupuncturist, a trained mindfulness-based stress reduction instructor. Christina Melia is a 38-year-old Edmonton patient uh, who's been trying to conceive for over a year. And she was able to this past year through in vitro fertilization. Look at the smile after going undergoing treatment with PCRM. We're going to learn more about that. Uh, she's now in her third trimester, of course, which means she conceived during the pandemic. And rounding out our panel, uh, Linda Huang is a very a good personal friend of mine. And what I really, really respect, or one of the things I respect about Linda, her infertility journey is one that she has documented in detail on her very popular Instagram profile. And I encourage you to check that out. Linda, as a matter of fact, is the one that made this panel happen, which I'm very grateful for. To the three of you, welcome to Real Talk. And thanks for making time for us today. Thanks, Ryan. Linda, is, is it fair to say uh, my introduction that that the word infertility can invoke very strong emotions in people? Yeah, I think even when I heard it, I've been publicly talking about my infertility for the last seven years. And it sort of depends when I get emotional or, or what topic kind of gets a lump in my throat. But uh, and I was thinking, am I going to cry when I talk to Ryan today? Uh, but yeah, when you said infertility and we're sort of describing the different emotions that, um, you know, go along with that word. I did feel uh, I did feel a little bit of a punch, but uh, but I'm not going to cry yet. Um, but yeah, it's uh, very loaded. Um, and I think um, a lot of people who are not affected don't even realize how the things they might say to people who are struggling. Maybe they don't know that they're struggling um, can really can really hurt um, those who are struggling as well. I've been. Um wrestling with whether or not to tell you something and uh so I, i've decided that i do want to tell you in honor of uh this little one who i will love uh, for the rest of my life but today is actually the anniversary of uh carrie and i actually losing a baby um which was a very difficult loss for us and every april 21st it hits me heavy first thing when i wake up in the morning as we as we celebrate his very short life um i was able to hold him and we laid him to rest but that was one that was a very difficult part of our journey because we had tried for a long time to conceive and, and then and when, then we lost that little boy and so i want you to know that i'm here with you in this conversation uh we we were able to have a child since as you know wyatt who's now five and beautiful in the light of my life but in a certain way i can relate to to the heartbreak and the difficulty that that comes with the journey and i wanted to say that right at the beginning of the interview so you know that in a way i guess i'm kind of walking with you through this conversation um christina what what a powerful experience for you uh, from, I, I suppose, probably trying uh, with with maybe little suspicion that you wouldn't have success and then taking steps to make it happen. And, and then now here you are in your third trimester. Where do we even begin in talking about your journey? I mean, where does this all start for you? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a long road. So we we had started, my husband and I started in 2018, and, and it took about six months to realize, okay, maybe maybe there's something not right. So we went to our doctor and uh, did a bunch of tests. And at the end of it, uh, I was uh, diagnosed with PCOS, which 
obviously made it more difficult to conceive. So after that, we were referred to PCRM and, and we were able to get in with them in, in August of 2019. And uh, when you when you hit the fertility clinic, you go through another battery of tests. And so we had a, a treatment schedule set up. And in February of 2020, we went through uh, an IUI, which was unsuccessful. So uh, we had mentally prepared, okay, we're going to take, uh, take the big step and do an IVF cycle. And we were ready to go. And then COVID hit in March 2020. So we, were, we had to sit on the sidelines for a couple of months. We didn't know if it was going to be weeks. We didn't know if it was going to be a year until we were able to start the next process. Uh, but thankfully, it was only about two months before we were able to, the clinic opened up back up and we were able to start our, our next uh, round of IVF. So thankfully, we were successful in our first try. So in September 2020, we were uh, confirmed that we were pregnant and uh, we're expecting a little one in about four weeks. So uh, can, can you tell us about the moment you found out that you were pregnant? <laughs> Well, you know what they tell you? Don't pee on the stick. You have to wait till you like do the blood test because they don't want to get your hopes up. But I never listened to any of that. So I was uh, I took a, a home pregnancy test and I could see the faintest of lines. And I think I probably text everyone in my uh, phone book just to sort of say, OK, do you think there's a line here? It was it was a moment of disbelief. And I honestly there's I think I was not believing until I started to see a bump because there's just such a long road and you just don't want it. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? So, um, and to be fair, until I see this baby on the outside, <laughs> I probably still won't believe that it's going to happen. So it was such a, it was such a relief to get that positive pregnancy on the first try. Oh, congratulations. That's so exciting. Um, Dr. Neo, is, is it, is it fair to say that, that everyone's, um, infertility or fertility journey and pardon me if i screw up on some of the words and phrases and and as as lebowski would say the preferred or his friend technically it was steve buscemi the, the, the preferred nomenclature dude i will do my best uh but but people's people's journey let's call it their family journey whatever that looks like different reasons for everybody doctor or some common themes i mean you've been doing this for more than 15 years how do you approach it every time somebody comes to you yeah, so there's all kinds of ways that this, you know, story can unfold. And there are all, all kinds of reasons. I mean, there, um, you know, there's there's female factor, there's male factor, there's unexplained, there's conditions like PCOS, um, endometriosis. Sometimes there's some kind of physical barrier. Sometimes age is, in factor, is a factor. And we do, you know, there's all kinds of even gender expressions or single people couples. So it's really um, quite a, you know, diverse presentation of uh, different stories and how it can unfold. People trying naturally, people, you know, uh, going with uh, assisted reproductive technology assistance. Um, there's all kinds of ways that this can present. So how did, how does it typically begin um, is w when you talk to someone uh, or when you talk to a, a couple, um, where does that conversation begin and, and what, what can people expect or what should people expect? Yeah, so I, you know, as a um, as a natural fertility specialist, by the time people come to me, it's either they're being proactive or they've already been trying for a while and they're wanting to explore other options. 
And so sometimes people will have had a diagnosis, sometimes people will not have had a diagnosis, in which case I will usually encourage them to go um, and have a fertility workup so that we can have a sense of exactly what's going on. Um, and, you know, Ryan, it really varies. It really depends on what's going on, right? And it also depends on where people are at. So if somebody's already been trying for um, a long period of time, um, they might just be feeling like, you know what, I'm um, on the verge of losing hope, or maybe they're just ready to just, you know, forge ahead and, and do IVF. Maybe they've already done a, a number of cycles of IVF and they're wanting to try something different. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of different ways that we can approach. I mean, in terms of the Chinese medicine approach, so our approach is really integrated. So we can either treat people naturally um, and, you know, help give them some guidance in terms of some, you know, evidence-based uh, holistic lifestyle modifications, um, or we work integratively. So that means working alongside uh, the fertility clinics. And so patients who are undergoing treatment at you know, PCRM, for example, maybe doing IUI or IVF. So they'll pair that with um, treatment from whole family health. And so uh, we offer acupuncture, stress relief treatment plans um, that, you know, might include uh, lifestyle modifications, you know, nutritional advice, exercise, stress reduction, mindfulness, yoga, massage. So these different options, they are you know, not only do they, I think, restore fertility patient sense of um, control, because there's this real uh, sense of loss of control in the experience. And so I, so since we're all being transparent here, I also have had a fertility journey. So it took me seven years to conceive mm. my son. Um, so, you know, we all know there's this kind of, there's a way in which, you know, there's sure there's stuff we have control over, but there's kind of ultimately we don't have control. So, you know, even though in my journey, you know, usually I can kind of make stuff happen in my life, you know, I can, if I do things just perfect, I can make it happen. But with, um, with infertility, that wasn't the case. And that's, so, you know, what, what we offer is just like options, right? Just like more options. So you want to know that you're doing everything that you can and that, that, you know, whatever you do have control over, um, that you're taking care of that. Yeah, the, the control thing is so big, isn't it? Um, you know, you, you, you're doing everything as a couple. You're doing everything, in, in, including dropping everything at work to come home right meow. Right, Linda? I know that, I, you know, to be home right now because the window is open. And people people that know know what I'm talking about. Linda, you know that, that I'm so impressed um, by your Instagram account and you posted this just a short time ago about Infertility Awareness Week, and you, you talk about your personal journey and how you and and Mike have been trying to conceive for seven years, and you've, you've been sharing these really remarkable images that, that document and detail your journey. You write, if you don't struggle with infertility, I hope posts like this open your eyes to the invisible struggles that so many around you may be facing in the hopes that society will become a little kinder about the assumptions we make or the expectations we have of others. You also say you hope that being open about your experience draws attention and change to the inconsistencies around standard fertility treatment procedures, medical recommendations, lack of women's health, and particularly reproductive health education overall. And you go on to invite people to participate in this and to further the dialogue. And people can find you on Instagram at Lindork. Um, you know, I'm noticing even in our live chat right now, 
You know, one of our audience members said she she had cervical cancer at age 26, had a hysterectomy. Hope said that this is a really difficult conversation for her to listen to. We have audience members talking about the years it took them to get pregnant or, or losing babies in between the babies or the children that they have now. Everybody's story is different. And some people are maybe sharing this publicly uh, for the first time. When you talk about invisible struggles, when you talk about assumptions or expectations in society, what are you talking about in particular and how do you want that or what would you like to see change? Yeah, I think there, you know, are assumptions that when and this is very traditional, you know, when a couple get together, they're going to get married. And then when they get married, then they're going to have a baby. So it's like you, we have these things that are just sort of set that are maybe popular culture um, and society has dictated all of this. And you just never assume that you're going to have any issues. We never assumed that we were going to have issues. It was, and you know, on the control thing, I'm very controlling. <laughs> so, so I was like, you know, we're going to get married. That's the date. Okay. And then we'll have, let's say like, you know, six to eight months just being a new couple. And then we're going to start trying and then, okay, you know, if we try during this month, then it'll be summer and then we'll have a summer baby. And it just had never occurred to me that 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 might not happen. And I and, you know, again, and I think it even goes down to what you're taught in school. You know, you're taught you have sex, you get pregnant. So don't do it until you're older and ready. Um so even when I say lack of women's health education, just from there as well. And as from for someone who's tried for seven years, I'm bad at math, but whatever all the months are in seven years, each month you get just a handful of days where something might be able to happen. And I'm just like baffled, you know, that actually the messaging for everyone is, you know, you, if you get pregnant, if you have sex, you'll get pregnant. It's like, no, that is not, that's not true. Um, That's not how it actually works. So it's almost, for me, it's almost better that people go into family planning and thinking about their future life as if they will have problems so that they can proactively, you know, check with their doctor, get a gynecologist all lined up, like all of these things. And this is the problem I think with dealing with infertility is that all of these different steps you don't realize, and then it adds another year. You can't get in for six months. You know, this procedure doesn't happen until the end of the month or whatever, all of those things add to that timeline. Then you've got your biological clock that's also ticking. So there's all of these different factors that I don't think people think about. And then when you say things like, you know, casually, oh, you know, when are you guys going to have kids or kids are probably on the horizon or, you know, you've been together for a while now. Why, where are the babies? Um, and, and it's just, I think people mean well, of course. Uh, but, but then couples who are struggling, you sort of, if you're not, you know, ready to talk about it, you kind of laugh it off. Um, and then you go home and cry or, you, you know, and it's like, well, actually, we've been struggling for, for quite a while. Or you don't know that I just had, you know, uh, uh, I just got my period yesterday and, and that was and I didn't want that. Um, so, yeah. And, and in terms of inconsistencies, my gosh, you know, <laughs> uh, even what Dr. Neo said about, you know, people might be coming to her after, you know, many failed IUIs or IVFs or maybe this is, you know, they're just starting out. 
I just don't understand why there isn't this like checklist. <laughs> like this is what, oh, these are all the things that you should be doing. And these are all the things that you should check off. And it just depends on who you talk to, whether this doctor recommends something or this gynecologist suggests something. Even right now, we're moving forward um, with IVF uh, in actually Barbados. We've decided that we're going to do a procreation vacation. <laughs> <laughs> might, as, might as well get some fun out of it. Um, but our Barbados clinic is asking us for these updated tests. And then there's one test that we've never even done. And I've literally, I've had to call five or six different places. I keep getting referred. We don't do that test. I think the, they do this test. And I'm like, how come this Barbados fertility clinic is asking us to do a test that Alberta health you know, systems aren't aren't even really doing so I so that baffles me so there's just like every you know every month there's a new thing that I'm like oh I, I didn't know that or or I, I guess you know you just go with it but yeah oh man that was thank you for giving me time to rant oh <laughs> I, I just it, it, it's just the, the only thing it's just such a shame Linda that you're so boring to listen to there's no passion <laughs> There's no passion whatsoever when you talk. Um, but hey, in all seriousness, what you're talking about with those questions and you acknowledge and I know it to be true that people do mean well, they mean well, but I mean, Amy, yeah. let me just put it in her words on our live chat. Amy says, this is why I panic a little when I hear people just casually ask couples or ask women, when are you having kids? Like Amy says, like, whoa, whoa, just consider that question can be very painful. Um, you know, we've been trying to have a second baby for for more than two years now. And every time somebody says, when are you guys going to have another kid? I just I'm like, first of all, I'm going to say it's none of your fucking business, first of all. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the question can be a real punch in the gut for people that have tried. I mean, Christina, you're nodding. I mean, did you experience that at the beginning of your journey? I would imagine so. Absolutely. I think um, I want to say it's kind of the, there's such a duality because even when somebody announcing a pregnancy is like a punch to the gut to you, right? So I remember a couple of years ago, a close friend of mine announced that she was pregnant. And as much as I was so happy for her and, and her uh, partner, um, I got in the car and I, I just cried, right? Because it wasn't uh, that I wasn't happy for it, but I was also grieving the the trouble, the difficulties we were having going through this process. So there's such a duality, and and like like Linda said, people mean well, but it's just you never really know what other people's stories are. So you just have to be very mindful of that. Doctor, why do you think when when Linda describes that procreation vacation is an, an amazing idea? And if you're go going to go anywhere, why not Barbados? Like, well yeah. done. <laughs> but doctor, why do you think that is the case that they're they're asking her to, to participate in some testing down there that we're not doing here in Alberta? Is, is the science not settled on some of the tests or are there different approaches or opinions based on geographical realities or what's the deal? Yeah, I mean, it is a very cutting edge field, right? And there are new developments all the time. And, um, you know, in over the years that I've been working in the industry, things have changed. Like even, even like, you know, normal sperm parameters have changed in the last 15 years. So things are always changing. And I think um, there can be a bit of lag time in terms of accessibility of certain tests that come to the forefront. Um, like even AMH, which is now a very common test, um, 15 years ago was not, you know, not as common. And um, in some provinces, like in BC, you have to pay for an AMH test, um, whereas in Alberta, it's not. So there is a lot of variability um, and there is some more advanced kind of, you know, scientifically 
um, technological advanced stuff that's more accessible in other places. Um, and I mean, I have to say in the States, it is more, um, it is, they're, they're a little bit ahead of the curve. It, there's always a bit of lag time in terms of us catching up here in Canada. Do you, I, I, many of our uh, viewers right now are pointing out um, by way of, of Twitter, even a couple emails to us in our live chat that IVF is not covered um, that people are paying out of pocket um, for this. Uh, this is problematic, I suppose, for a number of reasons. And I know people will say, well, there are budget realities and we can't pay for everything. But I mean, I want to ask the three of you about this. Uh, first of all, doctor, is that something you think you could make a compelling argument for? Is this something that you think should be funded uh, by the province uh, by way of transfers from the feds? Is that something that you hear your patients talking about on a regular basis? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are a couple of provinces, if I if I recall correctly, in Canada where it is covered to some degree, and there is definitely a huge movement in advocacy towards having it be more accessible to people. Um, that's a you know a big part of actually what Canadian Fertility Week is about. So it's about raising awareness and decreasing um, the stigma and changing the conversation. It's also you know part of that is also. Um, working towards advocacy to uh, have it covered and more accessible to people because it's just, I mean, for a lot of people, it's not even an option. Can I ask, like, um, I, I mean, everyone's journey is going to be different, um, but when it comes to pay to play, um, I would imagine some people have spent six figures trying to trying to conceive, but what's what's the average expenditure for somebody? When I think IVF, I automatically think 30, 40 grand. Am I, am I in the right ballpark? What are people spending? Um, this is a, yeah, I mean, I, it's hard for me to say because I don't work in that part of the industry, but I would have to say like probably minimum 10,000 upwards of 30 to 40,000 for sure. You know, depending on, you know, some people are having to use donor eggs, donor sperm, um, sometimes needing multiple cycles. So it can really vary. It's, you know, it's the, the medication is really um, the big cost. I think if people are lucky, they do have extended medical coverage for treatments. But, you know, again, it is something that's not necessarily accessible to a lot of people. Linda, in, in, in your fertility journey and, and in your advocacy journey, I know for a fact you've spoken to a ton of different people that are walking similar paths to you. How many of them, like approximately what percentage of them would you say have identified cost as a barrier? So many, yeah. Um, particularly if you go down the assisted sort of medical technology route, like IUI, I, um, IVF, and then, um, and then, yeah, as to, as to your point, six figures, you know, it sounds kind of crazy, but um, I, I know one couple that I think did IVF almost eight times. So if you, you know, let's say minimum 10 grand um, up to 20, 20 or 30 grand times eight, why am I doing math? <laughs> Um, but no, it, it, it absolutely is so expensive. I had um, another person tell me that they contemplated moving, moving up, uprooting everything and moving to Ontario. Because um, as, as Dr. Neo said, uh, some of the provinces do cover um, some of the procedures depending. So Ontario, to my knowledge, um, covers IVF, uh, but you have to have been a resident for at least a year. So for them, 
and it's a wait list. So even then it might take another, you know, five or 10 years before you get um, on this wait list. But for them, it, the discussion was, well, we're going to leave our jobs. We're going to sell our home. We're going to move to Ontario because that's where we could get this procedure covered. Um, so cost definitely is a factor uh, in all of this. For us, we're looking at probably around $20,000 we'll be spending for, for the IVF treatment alone. Um, part of our journey, we had also looked at adoption. Adoption would have been around 10 grand to 15 grand. Um, and and I, I don't even want to think about, um, I mean, I know the technology is, is probably better or, or uh, more ahead in the States, but just thinking about their healthcare and what would not be covered um, would just be a nightmare. And I think would exclude so many um, from being able to become parents. Christina, why was it important for you to to participate in this panel today? Like, why, why are you deciding to speak publicly about your journey? Um, I think it's mainly just to raise awareness and, and to sort of let people know that they're not alone and, and that there is support out there, whether it be through acupuncture or natural interventions or through medical um, assistance as well. I think the more people talk about it, the more they realize that it's more common than people, people, people realize. So uh, it doesn't have to be some like infertility comes in many, many forms. And the more we talk about it, the less shame and, 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 and loneliness is, is around it. Doctor, we were talking about um, PCRM, which I should note is the Pacific Center for Reproductive Medicine, PacificFertility.ca. And then, of course, uh, you're talking to us from from your perspective, your business and what you do as a as an expert when it comes to traditional Chinese medicine and as an acupuncturist. And, and people can check out uh, Whole Family Health, which is your business as well. So there's there's steps that people can take and there, there's IVF options and, and all that kind of thing. What about things that people can do right now, like, you know, diet, exercise, um, you know, swearing off. Uh, this was the part where I went, whoa, 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 swearing off <laughs> alcohol and cannabis. What? Uh, but <laughs> expectations are there, uh, you know, that people will do whatever they can. Are, are there simple steps that people can take that, that might improve their their chances even just a little bit out of the gates? Yes, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, um, I, I like to put it this way. It's like, you know, at any point in my life, I could probably go for a physical, you know, and I'd, I'd probably be like relatively healthy, but if I really like cleaned up my diet and exercised and, um, took care of my mental health, uh, then I'd be healthier. Right. And so there's no, um, yeah, there's no, it's only beneficial to do that. And so we'll be speaking to this in our, in our free virtual event too, in more detail, but certainly, I mean, in terms of um, nutrition, it's kind of common sense, right? It's like just trying to avoid like processed and refined food, um, trying to stick to more inflammatory foods. I mean, even just following the Canada food guide, which is uh, more of a plant-based diet. So not vegetarian, but like, you know, when you look at your plate, if half of your plate is colorful vegetables um, and then a healthy uh, protein, um, maybe a plant protein from Alberta. Um, <laughs> there you go. And, uh, um, uh, and, and a whole grain, right? Um, we also talk about colorful veggies. So the phytochemicals that create the, um, the color of vegetables are actually really antioxidant. And so they help to prevent DNA damage. Um, so, you know, even just simple choices like that are going to 
help to make you healthier. And so our approach is to optimize your overall health. And as we optimize your overall health, your reproductive health is optimized as well. Are you are you big on any uh, supplements or uh, I mean, I mean, even just sort of natural, like if you boost up a certain vitamin or anything like that, is there anything you recommend? I know that people will be eager to hear this. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So in terms of supplements, we like to stay on top of like the latest research. There's tons of research, as you can imagine, around this. Um, so, you know, obviously a prenatal med- um, supplement. So research has shown that taking a prenatal versus folic acid alone um, shortens conception times and decreases miscarriage rates. Um, also, Fish oil, fish oil is anti-inflammatory. So uh, inflammation, chronic inflammation is almost like a chronic level of stress in the body that your body has to deal with. And so um, we wanna, we wanna reduce that. Um, CoQ10 is a big one. Um, so what CoQ10 is, is it is, um, it's also called ubiquinol. So it's something that's ubiquitous throughout our bodies and our cells need this stuff to create ATP, which is the most basic unit of energy that our cells need to do their thing. Um, And so if we, if we take more CoQ10 in, then we're able to produce more cellular energy to drive cellular functions. Um, They did some research where actually um, they added CoQ10 to the substrate of um, embryos um, in patients where embryos tended to um, stop developing beyond a certain point. And um, adding CoQ10 to the substrate actually helped the embryos to develop um, further along. Um, so that's another big one. Also really helps with sperm motility, the CoQ10. So there are, I mean, depending on what's going on for you too. So for example, people with PCOS, there are specific supplements that we recommend for them. People with endometriosis, there are specific supplements that we recommend for them. If there is a male factor issue, then there are um, supplements that we recommend for that. So, yeah, I mean, so many different, say those are the three basic, so many different circumstances, of course, which is understandable. Um, Acupuncture, what role does it play? I mean, you are an acupuncturist. So as some people will point out, well, you have a bias, obviously, so do all of us. But but uh, can, can, can you point to evidence that you think that it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, okay, acupuncture, what it it increases blood flow, it decreases inflammation, um, it decreases stress hormones. Um, I mean, in terms of the evidence, so there, you know, there is evidence where they've measured what we call the pulsatility, um, which is blood flow with acupuncture. And so it's been shown that acupuncture increases pulsatility. So they've, they've shown this through, um, uh, like thermo photography, is that what it's called? Um, so photography where they can measure heat in the body. And so, um, that's how they can tell that circulation has been increased. We also know that it decreases inflammatory markers. Certainly it decreases stress. So that is something um, that has been measurable. So there are certain stress markers um, that are reduced. Uh, we know that it's you know really good um, if pain is associated with the diagnosis. So um, you know in patients who have severe dysmenorrhea or um, endometrial pain, um, acupuncture is really effective in the treatment of, of pain. It's been shown to actually like um, deactivate parts of the brain that are associated with pain uh, reception. Um, also, there's also been studies where, so for example, with male factor, um, there was a study that they did where they where they performed acupuncture twice a week for five weeks in the lead up 
to IVF treatment um, in um, males with idiopathic male factor infertility. And there were significant improvements in sperm quality after those five weeks. So tons of evidence. Um, it's, it's also, you know, it doesn't sound relaxing to have a bunch of needles in your body, but it totally is. It's totally relaxing. Um, you, you talk to anybody that's done it and they'll agree. Um, but you're right. It doesn't sound relaxing at all, <laughs> but, but it can be it is. surprisingly. It very much is. And, and the feeling after the fact is, is pretty remarkable as a matter of I've, I've lived with migraines my whole life and, and acupuncture has been been a, a big part of, of addressing that. Linda, tell me about this, this free integrated fertility event. Are you taking part in it? Actually, I'm helping Dr. Yeah. Neo uh, and Christina prepare for it, but I'm not oh. taking part in it. Oh. No, but it's on. I know all about it. Okay, but. so yeah, for for for, pe- for people that want to participate or that, that are interested, what do they need to know? Yeah, so um, it's open to everyone. You don't have to have struggled with infertility. Um, maybe you know someone who has. Maybe you just want to broaden your your perspective on it, or or you're just starting to try, um, and you just want to see what what's out there. So uh, it's a free uh, virtual event happening on Sunday um, as part of Infertility Awareness Week. It's put on um, by Whole Family Health as well as PCRM. Um, so we'll have doctors from uh, PCRM talking about what infertility is and different ways uh, to treat it. We'll have Dr. Neo um, and her team. Talk talking about mindfulness, stress reduction, acupuncture, different sort of more natural ways uh, to treat it. And then we'll have wonderful uh, and brave patients like Christina um, and a couple of other women who will be sharing uh, their stories and advice and takeaways uh, just from from their personal perspectives uh, as well. So it's at two o'clock on Sunday free um, and you can register at Whole Family Health. Uh, their websites. But, uh, but yeah, but just, uh, you know, I, I, I really um, appreciated how Dr. Neo said that the week is about, you know, reducing stigma and having these conversations, but also hopefully in having these conversations, we're also pushing, um, you know, we're pushing those barriers around healthcare or, you know, cost coverage, and, and we're pushing for, for even change at a government level, um, not just at that societal level. It's a big, it's a big you know, big issue. <laughs> it's huge. And I know that even though we've had a great conversation here, we, we, we could probably talk for another three hours. Um, we could read some of these stories that audience members are sharing. I mean, we could really get into it. It just it reiterates to me that this is something that is applicable or relevant to so many people. Um, and I really appreciate, uh, I mean, Linda, for you to come on here, incredible courage. I just, you know, I adore you. Um, Christina, we're so excited for you and your family and, and your message also equally as powerful to people. And, and Dr. Neo, I know that, that, uh, the work that you're doing is, is appreciated by so many as well. Thank you for your advocacy and your expertise. And thanks to you three for joining us here as, as we observe Canadian infertility awareness week. Thank you so thanks, much Ryan. for having us. Yeah, you thanks bet. Thanks so much, Ryan. Our thanks to Dr. Aldeneo. Um, that was uh, Christina Amelia and uh, my good friend Linda Huang. I encourage you to follow Linda on Instagram at Lindork. She's got a great Instagram account. So our thanks to them. We have these conversations because, quite frankly, we've got sponsors that support us and keep us on the air every morning. I mean, that's just a fact. And that includes the team at Clean Air Club. They want you to save money and breathe easy. If you want to look out for your family and, and take a step that that'll be a big one in the right direction, why not save money and breathe easy at the same time? It's simple. You go down, you take a look at your furnace. I know some of you have been thinking about doing this. You hear me talk about this every day and you go, uh, why am I not doing it? Do it today. Do it. I'm talking to you. Do it 
today. Go check out the size of the furnace filter you need. It's stamped right there on the cardboard. You punch it in at cleanairclub.ca. Typically the next day, they have the replacement filters dropped off on your front door. I know all, all of us are thinking, why didn't we come up with this business idea? You replace the furnace filters on schedule. You pay less than you would in store and your family will thank you. Check out cleanairclub.ca. .ca today. Also, a big shout out to the teams at uh, w- w- when we talk about our hashtag Real Talk RJ, and we're going to get to some of the tweets you've been sending us about that Trudeau interview yesterday. Park Power is powering that hashtag every day at parkpower.ca. If you enter the promo code 2021 Real Talk, you join a big group of Real Talkers that have saved 70 bucks on their first bill. Internet, electricity, natural gas, commercial, residential, Park Power does it, and they share their profits with local nonprofits. Check out their Instagram, by the way. It's great, especially the tips on power consumption and dialing that back. What kind of power provider wants you to stop using so much power? Park Power because they're great community members and we're grateful to be partnering with them. I've also mentioned uh, the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food, and I've let you know that our dogs, Moses and Monroe, enjoy that quality raw food each and every day. We were customers of Grand Dog well before they came on board, and so I can tell you our personal testimonial is that it's the best move we've made for the health of our four-legged family members. If you use the promo code REALTALK, one word, at granddog.ca, they'll knock 10% off your first bill. Talk to their nutrition experts today they do a great job finding the right solution for your dog and they deliver to your door in calgary edmonton and central alberta well it's been a bit of a whirlwind for the show here over the over the last uh 26 hours or so including a conversation with canada's prime minister justin trudeau who joined us yesterday afternoon a special broadcast event we were calling it if you missed the interview about 20 minutes you can check it out on our youtube channel or you can download the podcast we asked the prime minister about travel restrictions and i know that this is a story that a lot of you are following as india has recorded 250,000 new covid cases this week alone the number continuing to climb and it's prompted a lot of canadians to call on the federal government to stop international flights arriving from india and to take a more meaningful approach to things like quarantine measures now we asked the prime minister about this yesterday specifically and here's what he had to say We're always looking to do more based on the science, based on the need to keep Canadians safe. But I I, want to remind people that uh, from last March, a year ago, we brought in some of the toughest measures in the world. That two week quarantine that we sort of understand as being the base level necessary. A lot of countries didn't do that and didn't do that for a long while. And then when the variants started uh, appearing around uh, around the beginning of the new year, uh, we took extra measures with a pre pre-departure test necessary uh, and now an arrival test and now a government approved accommodation uh, waiting time uh, until your test comes back negative once you've landed uh, and far more checks on the two-week quarantine uh, so that it's enforced. Like We have some of the strongest measures that mean uh, that the importation of cases and the spread from, uh, from overseas travelers is minimal. Now, it's not zero, so we need to continue to be vigilant. And I've asked people to take a look at uh, what more we can do. But I think people need to know already uh, that we have some of the toughest measures in the world. So that was the prime minister yesterday on international flights and on travel restrictions. 
potentially pending and on some of the other related issues, including these quarantine hotels. I wanted to note that that not everybody was happy. Not everybody is satisfied with the quarantine measures that are being taken. I didn't have a chance to get to this question yesterday, but I wanted to read this comment from Brianne, who took the time to be in touch with the show. She, she said, can you please ask Justin Trudeau, why Canadian hockey families like mine, uh, Brand's husband plays professional hockey, says we left the country in the summer, uh, but we're being forced to stay in quarantine hotels at our own expense. Uh, we left in order to make a living overseas. She says for us, it was Germany and to not take away from the already depleted Canadian social network. Uh, it was stay at home and file for unemployment or find a job, which is not easy these days. Uh, Brianne says, I don't see why we're being punished financially and being held in hotels with small kids and pets when we have private homes to return to isolate in. We understand the need to protect our Canadian community, but we feel we have earned the right to return to our homes. She says, I must add for all the naysayers, we do not consider ourselves essential workers, but we do consider working abroad essential travel for our family to earn a living. She says, I speak on behalf of hundreds of stressed out and quite frankly, pissed off Canadian hockey families. Well, what I could not ignore is how many responses Brianne received to that proposed question. Uh, Sarah chimed in and said, I absolutely second this. She says, we left before these restrictions were in place to earn a living for a hockey, for a contract. We own an empty home. We could go home and quarantine right now. I have a 10-month-old and a three-year-old. We're currently in a hotel, and it's a nightmare. Others chimed in and said, we completely agree with this. Uh, Clint and Lindsay chimed in and said, us too. You know, we didn't even travel home last year after playing because of the pandemic and there was nothing to regulate transmission while the government panicked for, for everyone to get home without having proper tools to provide safe travel. And also, if, if, if the government is so worried about curbing tourism, why are hotels even open? Uh, let us get back safely, Clinton Lindsay say, to our place of residence to quarantine. You know, much of Europe has closed hotels. Uh, tourism related opportunities have been closed for nearly a year. Uh, where are these rapid tests? Why is the federal government not provided tools for Canadians to have at-home tests if they feel sick? How is Canada so behind here? Brooke chimed in and said this affected us as well. This is really remarkable, Sam. Hey, to hear, hear from so many hockey families in particular. Brooke says professional hockey has been the, the, the sole way that my husband's made money his entire life. And for the last eight years, for us, says Brooke, it's been in Europe. This is not a vacation for our family. It's essential for us to make money, to put a roof over our heads, to put food on the table for ourselves and our two young boys. Uh, we should not be financially penalized because our husbands fulfilled their contractual obligations to go overseas, play hockey, to make money and support the families. It's a it's a tough time for them to have to look for so-called regular jobs when Canada has a, a relatively high unemployment rate and they have no work-related experience in anything other than playing hockey. Who's even going to hire them? And for that matter, what businesses are even open with the lockdowns going on? So, I mean, you know, uh, Amy Johnner chimed in. Her husband, Dustin, just wrapped up a wonderful career in Europe uh, with a championship with the Belfast Giants, by the way. Uh, Amy says hundreds of hockey families are affected by this, and it's probably more in the thousands when you consider others who work abroad temporarily. Uh, rules need to be more clear. Sydney chimed in wondering, I mean, with regards to that hotel quarantine in general, where's the data to back up that entire program? 
uh, Sydney says staying in a hotel with hundreds of strangers is surely less safe than going home to quarantine. Not only are you putting travelers at risk, but what about the hotel staff that have to work at these quarantine hotels? So some interesting feedback there, some interesting comments um, around uh, Canadian families working abroad, specifically in the context of, of professional hockey players in Europe, uh, but many others as well, I'm sure, that are that are working internationally. The idea of the quarantine hotel, I won't say that my knowledge on this is deep enough to really dig into the argument for or against, but I will say, Sam, that I've seen evidence personally uh, and anecdotally from audience members as well. Some of them have provided us like names to name and shame people, which obviously we couldn't do and wouldn't do. But there's evidence that seems to be all over the place that not everybody's quarantining or, or quarantining or restricting their movement when they get home from travel. It's not everybody's doing it on, uh, to, uh, you know, on their own will. Yeah, I I mean, <laughs> I think you just made the argument for quarantine hotels. And I, I say this with so much empathy to people that have their own homes and, and have a place to quarantine, have family supports around them. But personal responsibility doesn't work. It doesn't. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. We've proven that over and over and over again. Other nations in the world have implemented a hotel type program. There's different funding models available. There's different things. I think that there's some real argument to be made about the personal expense on this as well. But, you know, writ large, I think that, you know, we have to consider the fact that this is a crisis and it needs to be managed like a crisis. And, and enforcing people to stay in hotels might be the only way to contain this. And, and you know, again, I, I think that there's probably tons of exceptions and tons of circumstances that are different. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's... If you choose to travel into this country, you have to follow some rules to keep us safe. And and we've seen over and over again that personal responsibility doesn't work. Personal responsibility in hotels doesn't work, it seems like. You know, people are skipping them, moving away from them, not following the way that it's done. And, and it just, honestly, it baffles me why people see these things as such inconveniences where, like, the real inconvenience is living with this stupid virus. Wally says countries should be blocking Canada says we've got a higher rate than many of them. Um, sure. Uh, Tracy says the uh, the A380 is planning to to resume flights uh, into Calgary in May. Uh, and most of that flight is is people coming in from India, but we're not even vaccinating our border officers. Ytrium says you, you should pay at your own expense when you want to return to the country. Alyssa says the issue is that people weren't isolating at home. So blame them. Blame them. Tanya says, I feel for Brianne, but frankly, we can't trust people. The whole personal responsibility piece of it has failed over and over, and we have to put rules in place and enforce them. Ken says people simply can't be trusted to do the right thing. I mean, you know, I wonder what the uproar would be if we had ankle monitors instead. That's actually an amazing idea. I mean, not actually, because, you know, some people would have a field day with that, but how about that from Ken? Kim says, I stayed in a hotel as a treat to get away from my family in November. There was a great deal for locals. That's an amazing idea. Isn't that what uh, Andrew Fung bought his wife for Christmas? Yes, he, he did. Said that? Yeah. yeah, from Kim's yeah. Convenience. That's right. That was a great interview. Oh, I, oh, interview. I just realized as I thought of Andrew Fung, 
I forgot that uh, I think it was Kaylin on our live chat had given Linda Huang on that infertility roundtable a 10 out of 10 room raider. Uh, she thought that Linda's background was really good. That's kind of what Linda does, though. Linda's life is made to be Instagram. If, if Linda had and, and, and Linda's a wonderful person. She had a if she had if she had a lousy background, we would kind of wonder yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Yeah. We'd wonder what was going on. Jim says snowbirds, uh, you know, driving all day, go, you know, driving by all day, go home and quarantine. You drive. Uh. If you drive in, it's one set of rules says jim if you fly in it's another uh, tracy reiterating the call for vaccinating border officers says this you know this is the type of entitlement that they're dealing with um tracy's a uh, different tracy uh says i understand but there, there's way too many people not following restrictions the virus is being brought here that sucks look at the variants you know even a trip to alberta or, or bc for a ski trip tracy says i acknowledge that it sucks i mean bc's got roadblocks going up now premier john horgan um basically yeah, they're, they're cutting off the province he's unapologetic about it too right yep so i mean i mean that's that's a fact um amy says hotel quarantines are difficult she says i've done a 14 and a 21 day hotel quarantine on our own dime what was that amy that's got to be at least two grand right at least she says but by the end of the day i was almost tempted to stay longer as the routine and the slower pace was good the longest i've ever stayed at a hotel is 10 days and i felt like i lived there like it just it gets to you after a while. It does get to you after a while. Yeah. I and mean, when I first moved to Edmonton, like when I first started, they put me up in a hotel for the first month while I trained uh, getting on with a TV station I worked at. And uh, and I remember part of it. I got a real kick out of it because like living in a hotel is like your bed's made every yeah, day. It's, and it's, it's glamorous. It's, it's like clean yeah. every day. Everything's tidied up. But at the same time, you just miss the comfort of home. You always still sort of feel like you're living in a hotel. I feel like that glamour of it like that that sort of comfort level of the the cleanness and the pristineness of hotel where wears off like five days in or so yeah. like it 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 goes stale after a while yeah um i want i do want to say i want to address i see a lot of uh i see a lot of sort of like these are rich professional entitled hockey player comments popping up on the live chat keep in mind these are these are these are players that are playing over in europe they're, they're not probably poor um, but we're not talking about Connor McDavid, $12 million a year here. These are these are people that have a limited window uh, on on their earning power as professional athletes. And, and in Europe, I mean, yeah, they can make a great living, but but they're probably making between 75 and 300,000 a year. Like that's probably ish. I mean, unless they're sort of bigger Canadian names that have gone over there as really high profile imports. Um, they're they're not making a million dollars a year. They're not making five million dollars a year. So so just I I think I think that that is worth pointing out. If a, if a pro hockey player is able to play professionally for ten years and make two hundred and fifty grand a year, that's a great living. But but these are not people that have multiple homes and multiple properties that can just burn cash. I mean I do think that's worth pointing out. I don't want them to get an unfair shake on the live chat. I mean I suppose so, but you know your floor was seventy five thousand, and that's a that's a really good. Salary salary for most people well sure right like but you take just, well yeah. sam sure but if you take somebody that's making seventy five thousand, that's 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 not a ton of cash for somebody that may have a career of 10 years that's being at that that is forced to travel internationally I, I, i'm this, yeah. i don't even feel like i'm being devil's advocate here i just think it's worth pointing out that if you're making seventy five thousand a year and you have to travel internationally for work and then you have to stay in a hotel for two weeks on your own time that that is a significant expenditure 
Right? Don't yeah. you think? I mean, 75 before tax, and let's say you pay two grand. I mean, that's that's not nothing. My point is just, and I know people say, oh, boo-hoo, these guys make a quarter million a year or whatever. All I'm saying is that they're not making 10 mil, and I don't think that their concerns should just be written off like that, right? Um, you know, James, I mean, James, here's an example. He says, if they can afford to get that high in the hockey world, their family has money. I mean, th- first of all, that's not necessarily true. He says no sympathies. Well, that's kind of a weird approach to take. I mean, we we at least try to understand where they're coming from and understand their perspective, don't we? I mean, if we want people to listen to what you care about, we should probably listen to what other people care about. Don't expect everybody to agree here. Uh, I do agree with James where he says hockey is not a game that poor people can afford to get into. And that is very true. Um, and there is some great work going on to to see more marginalized communities involved in hockey and to see who kid, you know, kids that wouldn't otherwise have a chance get involved in hockey. But I definitely agree with you, James, that there are major financial barriers and, and not just to hockey, uh, but to a lot of things. James is following up by saying I'm devil's advocating on behalf of have families. Um, Lalazaz says a lot of Canadian performers have not been able to work for over a year and they've had to find other incomes. Athletes are not an exception. That's true as well. People in event management, that's it's been a big part of my career, quite frankly, for the last 10 years. That's hit a wall. And I know many event planners, many AV professionals, audio and visual, uh, video production, um, caterers, uh, venue managers. I mean, they've been absolutely screwed over the last year. And we know that, you know how they get less screwed and you know how they get back on their feet. We take meaningful action against this pandemic and finally stamp it down. Finally stamp it down. We've been talking about childcare. We've been talking about many other issues that require cooperation between provincial and federal governments. And just yesterday, I know that a lot of Albertans were disheartened, and maybe that's not a strong enough word to hear Premier Jason Kenney talk about how he feels about the federal government's investment in affordable child care. He basically says, thanks, but no thanks. Albertans don't want to be told what to do with programs or how to spend our money. Meantime, the prime minister and Minister Miriam Monsef, who joined us this morning, have said there will be strings attached. And uh, Minister Monsef gave us um, some specific details on what the feds would be looking for, including uh, making sure that fees were cut by minimum by 50 percent. That was one of the sort of the parameters or one of the mile markers that she gave us that the feds would be looking for. It made sense for me to ask the prime minister yesterday about his relationship with Jason Kenney. It's obvious that Alberta's premier cannot stand Justin Trudeau. I mean, keep in mind, this is the guy that on the record, Jason Kenney said that the prime minister has the political depth of a finger bowl. I mean, that's just one of the things off the top of my head that indicate he can't stand him. Is he jealous? Probably. But what does this mean for Albertans? I asked the prime minister yesterday. I think that we've demonstrated from the federal side that we are there to work uh, with Albertans. We're there to work with provincial and territorial governments right across the country. Uh, No, we're not going to agree on everything. Canadians don't expect us to agree on everything, Uh, but they do expect us to work together. And that's why uh, we have consistently 
been there. We've consistently supported. We move forward. You mentioned those orphan wells, for example. I mean, that was something about uh, giving fairness and respect to landowners who were feeling uh, very much, uh, uh, you know, vulnerable because of that, that that problem. And we were glad that we we're able to move forward on investments that both create jobs and protect the environment at the same time. And doing those kinds of things uh, with the provincial government make a big difference. And I'm always going to look for ways to uh, to, to, to support. Ken, uh, who's watching, says the premier doesn't want to be told how Albertans can be helped with their own money. It makes complete sense. Um, Let me state or point out or reiterate that it's not unusual for a premier and not just an Alberta premier, but for a premier to tell Ottawa that we will decide, thank you very much, how we spend our money. That's been the whole impetus for, and it's been the model for health transfers, for example, when it comes to education, you look at how every province or territory rolls differently, including Alberta, right, with our uh, more than century-old commitment to, for example, a fully funded public Catholic education. That's one example here in Alberta. What I would imagine that most people will be interested in seeing is what an Alberta government's child care plan would look like. I mean, keep in mind, this is the Alberta government that just allowed the funding to expire for a $25 a day child care pilot in the province. And we've talked to, to day home providers. We've talked to advocates about that on the show before. Many people, including parents, are being led to believe that this provincial government really doesn't understand what's best for families or at least for the majority of families. And that's why I think there's a hesitation on having the Alberta government devise a child care plan that would go any further than simply putting money in people's pockets. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with putting money in my pockets? And even me, myself, personally, speaking on behalf of Ryan Jesperson, I do believe, and I've talked before, about many advantages to a smaller government, to allowing Canadians to decide where they spend their money and how. There are compelling arguments to be made around that. And I would argue many of them sincerely. But here's the thing. Much like public health care, much like public education, when you talk about child care, you have to acknowledge that model matters and there needs to be investment in programs and in services and there have to be certain things that matter in other words making sure that workers are paid properly making sure that facilities are are accessible to everybody and that they fit the communities or the needs of the communities that are there we need to invest in the system as opposed to in each and individual family this is what the advocates will say and that's going to be the argument for the federal government if you heard me ask Heidi's question yesterday to the prime minister, Heidi Bergstrom, a a member of our audience who's been on the show before talking about this. You know that in her preamble, she stated that the federal government's task force is playing an important role in coming up with a structured system that would roll out an affordable child care plan that would best serve Canadians. So this is where the debate needs to be. There will no doubt be huge pressure on Alberta's government to come up with some sort of a response to this. Because I really, really doubt that hundreds of thousands or even millions of Albertans are going to be okay with Alberta opting out of a federally funded child care plan without providing a meaningful alternative. So that's a story that we'll be keeping an eye on in days to come.
We've got so much to come on on the show uh, over the next number of days. And before we wrap today, I want to tee up a couple of quick things to let you know what we're looking at. Uh, Coming up tomorrow on the show, we're going to be getting to more of your emails. I know that we didn't read any of them today because we've jammed in a whole lot, but you can keep those coming to talk at RyanJesperson.com. You can imagine we have a lot to sift through and we're going to leave some time tomorrow for that. We're also going to talk to six. Yeah, six contributors to a pandemic book project and i'm really excited about that i have no doubt it's going to inspire you and then i also wanted to give you a heads up coming up on friday our real talk roundtable we bring that to you each and every friday it's going to focus on what may very well be the most ambitious and most eco-friendly sustainable house build in canadian history That's how they're spinning it anyway. We're going to take a look inside. It's in partnership with St. Polytechnic out of Calgary. It's a beautiful home, and we're going to get to go inside, so to speak. That's going to be the focus of our Friday Real Talk Roundtable. Before we go, I wanted to remind you that if you're looking to go green on your home build or maybe retrofit your home, Kubi Energy is the team to talk to. Uh, Founder Jake Kubiski was on our solar panel a number of weeks ago. He's got a remarkable story started in oil and gas and transitioned his own career to solar now they're doing residential commercial industrial installations in alberta and bc they're tesla certified and they handle all your paperwork to make sure you get the rebates you're entitled to oh yeah and they sponsor positive reflections each and every monday morning here on the show you can submit your good news stories your remarkable videos uh, the stories of how someone paid it forward or showed you a random act of kindness to talk at ryanjesperson.com that's presented by the team at kubi energy and before we sign off and then you go outside and get a breath of fresh air and and, and see the dead grass uh, i'm going to define i'm going to describe my own backyard right now the, the the uninspiring lining around your garden the the we could do more realization that slowly washes upon you why not take five minutes and tour landscapeedmonton.ca That's where the team at Eden Landscaping shows off some of the great work that they've done for partners over the 20 plus years they've been in business. Now's a great time to book your consultation with them. Even if you don't even have an idea or maybe you have a very specific vision, they devise it and design it for you. Then they build it all with one company, the family owned Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Well, here we are. At the end of another show and the day ready to get started on getting back to you, on booking more guests, on getting our online shop up with our mugs, shirts, and hats ordered. An announcement there to come. Plus, a new producer starting on Monday. What a week for real talk. Have a great day, friends.